Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. And this episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Before we study today, just a couple of notes. As we mentioned to you earlier in this week, during the summer, we're going to move to two episodes, one released on Monday. It will be either a connections episode or a questions episode. And then on Fridays, we'll release the confession episode as we continue to study the confession of faith. I also would encourage you as you listen to these confession of faith episodes to know these are very different than the connection and the question episodes. Those are probably suitable for a walk, a ride in the car, but you may find that the confession episodes, you may want to be sitting still with a journal or a pen in hand or a Bible. Uh, They're a little more dense, and I hope they would serve to grow us in our faith together. So you may think about approaching uh, these episodes in in a different way, in a different posture. So this week, we begin Westminster Confession of Faith 2.1. As we established previously, the confession begins with revelation. How does God make himself known? Before knowing who God is, the confession seeks to establish how we know him. And we understand that God makes himself known in general and special revelation. We studied that in Westminster chapter 1. So now Westminster 2 turns to the question, who is this God that is revealed in general and special revelation. And we are going to walk through this chapter sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, so that we can know more deeply and truly who God is. In 1855, Charles Spurgeon said this of the doctrine and knowledge of God. This is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man, as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Well said by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And as it is written in Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And thus J.I. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, says this, God is not the sort of person that we are. His wisdom, his aims, his scale of values, his mode of procedure differ so vastly from our own that we cannot possibly guess our way to them by intuition or infer them by analogy from our own notion of ideal manhood. We cannot know him unless he speaks and tells us about himself, and he has spoken. 
And thus, once again, the confession of faith begins with how we know God. He has spoken, and our knowledge of him is completely dependent on his revelation of himself. Now, another word as we begin our consideration of the doctrine of God, or what's known as theology proper, don't fall in love merely with the doctrine. Our doctrine and our theology is about a person. To fall in love with the knowledge and the doctrine would be like someone looking out over a beautiful brow view and becoming enamored with the glass. And thus Jeremiah writes in chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So let us now, with those words in mind, consider Westminster Confession of Faith 2.1, the first two sentences. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, with neither body parts, nor passions. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage is often called the Shema from the initial Hebrew word meaning hear. This verse is the great confession of Israel's monotheistic faith. To this day it is recited morning and evening by Jews. There is only one God, one being worthy of worship. This statement comes in a moment where there were known thought to be many gods, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylons, the Canaanites. Scripture goes on to affirm the singular, unique, only true God, specifically in two places. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Jeremiah in chapter 10 verse 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. One of the implications of the singularity of God is that we must not make the deadly exchange of worshiping false gods, which are really no gods at all. There's only one true God, but we chase other gods, the worship of created things. Paul tells us in Romans, that's a deadly exchange. In Romans 1.23, he says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Then in verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. We must be vigilant 
when we see ourselves making the deadly exchange of worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator, for there is only one God and thus one worthy of our worship. You see, our core problem is that we are in a purposeful rebellion against the one living and true God, and we are seeking something else to worship. The confession goes on to say there's only one living and true God. You heard that in Jeremiah 10. He's the living God, the eternal king. The one true God is living. As R.C. Sproul says, God is neither an abstract impersonal force nor a philosophical concept. He is a personal living being, not imagined or invented, but is real, alive, and the source of life itself. You see, we must not allow the transcendence, the majesty, the uniqueness, the otherness of God to lead us to depersonalize God. God is a personal living being. However, even in understanding God as a personal being, let us not believe for a moment that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Therefore, we don't approach him in a cavalier manner. We approach him knowing he is living and true, personal. The confession goes on to say that God is infinite in being and in perfection. So only one God, only one living and true God, and that God is infinite in being and perfection. God is infinite. This is known as the eternality of God, the aseity of God, a theological concept of the self-existence of God, that whatever he is is by his own self or of his own self. Thus, in Exodus 3.15, he would reveal himself to Moses saying, I am who I am. He's infinite. He says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 48, 12 says, I am the first and I am the last. God is infinite. And he is infinite in his being and in his perfection. For God to be infinite in his being means he is omnipresent. There is no place, no zone, no area that his being does not permeate. Attributes such as this one, omnipresence, are part of what we call God's incommunicable attributes, meaning those attributes which cannot be shared with mankind. Thus, God is infinite without temporal beginning and ending, yet we are finite, marked by birth and death. Another incommunicable attribute is God is omnipresent without bounds and boundaries. We have spatial boundaries and limitations. God is immutable. He does not change. We change and shift like the wind. God is infinite in his being. But he's also infinite in his perfection. God is perfect in every respect. There are no hints of imperfection of any kind. No failures, no lacking, no forgetfulness. As Stephen Sharnock says in his Discourses on the Attributes of God, God is not in his essence this day what he was not before, or will be the next day in years what he is not now. 
All his perfections are most perfect in him every moment. Before all ages, after all ages, he is what he always was and he is what he will always be. What a comfort to know the truth of our God, the one God, the one living and true God, infinite in being and perfection. But then the confession goes on to say that God is a most pure spirit, invisible with neither body, parts, nor passions. God is a most pure spirit. He said that to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 24. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Once again, Sharnock says that if God were not a spirit, now pay close attention to this quote and get your mind around this. If God were not a spirit, he could not be infinite or positively because he is a spirit. He is also an independent being who is illimitable and immutable. His immutability, his unchangeableness depends on his simplicity. And we'll get to the simplicity of God and that he is without parts, as the confession makes clear. What does it specifically mean that God is a most pure spirit? Well, the confession is clear. It means he is invisible, without body. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the invisibility of God is not to exclude him from the realm of visibility, but to regard him as the Lord of visibility, the Lord of light. This does not mean he can never be seen under any circumstances, but that he sovereignly chooses when, where, and to whom to make himself visible. Unless God manifests himself, we cannot see him. And he has revealed himself in the world. So John Calvin says there's not an atom of the world in which one cannot discern at least some bright sparks of his glory. He's revealed himself in the word and most clearly Hebrews tells us in his son. So he is invisible without body, but that does not preclude him from manifesting himself. It also means that God is a most pure spirit that he's without parts. This doctrine is known as the simplicity of God. Whatever is in God is God. God is not a complex being divided into parts. Humans are complex. We have eyes, ears, arms, toes, hearts, lungs. Uh, But God is not complex and he does not have parts. Whatever is in God is God. So listen, this is the implication and this is quite wonderful. We must not think of his attributes as parts that make up the whole As if God is one part love, one part holy, one part omnipotent, one part wrath, one part wise. No. All of God is all of his attributes in their entirety and perfection. Thus, R.C. Sproul would say, God's holiness is immutable, omnipotent, eternal, and omnipresent. But his omnipotence is not arbitrary or capricious, but holy and immutable. And God's power will never weaken because it's unchangeable. Every attribute that we ascribe to him applies to the whole of God. The doctrine of God's simplicity that he is without parts is a great comfort and a great hope for it affirms the consistency and the reliability of God. For if God could be changed by anything within himself, all in God would not be God. 
But then the confession tells us he is without passions. God is impassable, and that is because he is immutable. This is good news. God does not go through mood swings. God does not go through depression or apathy. He is reliable and unchanging in his being. As A.W. Pink says, he cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. And as humans, J.R. Packer mentions that a kind, equitable person may turn bitter and crotchety. A person of goodwill may grow cynical and callous, but nothing of this happens with the Creator. And this is a great comfort. In the ancient Near East and in Greek mythology, the gods were susceptible to emotional fluctuation. Their mood could be changed. They could be manipulated by the people and what happened on the altars, even child sacrifice. That's not true of our God, the one true God. As Herman Bavink says, this doctrine should not be confused with monotonous sameness or rigid immobility. No. In the show notes, I'll I'll link an essay Matthew Barrett wrote on the immutability, the unchangeableness, and the impassibility that God is without passions of God. And he says this, some would take the impassibility of God to mean that he is stoic, lifeless, indifferent, apathetic, and incapable of love or compassion. That is, unfortunately, the all-too-common caricature. Actually, impassibility without passions ensures just the opposite. God could not be more alive or more loving than he is eternally. Barrett goes on to apply this truth to an attribute like love, and this is so rich. It becomes plain why doctrine matters as you hear Barrett speak. Doctrine is a comfort It is a surety. Listen to this. If God is impassable without passions, then he does not merely possess love. He is love. And he is love in infinite measure. He cannot become more loving than he already is eternally. If he did, then his love would be passable. It would change. Maybe from good to better? maybe from good to worse, which would imply it was not perfect to begin with. In that light, the impassibility of God ensures that God is love in infinite measure. While the love of a passable God is subject to change and improvement, listen to this, The love of an impassable God changes not in its infinite perfection. The doctrine of impassibility guarantees that God's love could not be more infinite in its loveliness. God does not depend on others to activate and fulfill his love. No, he is love in infinite measure, eternally, immutably, and independently from the created order. All that to say, it may seem counterintuitive, but only impassibility, without passions, can give us a personal God who is eternal, unalterable love. Far from apathetic or inert, impassibility promises the believer 
that God could not be any more loving than he is eternally. And that is something a passable God could never promise. With this study, I hope that you have found faith in your God, the one, only, living and true God. I hope your faith has been strengthened and deepened. And I pray these truths have led you to worship, for indeed there is no one like our God. And to be loved and known by our God, infinite in being and perfection, is so wonderful and so joyous that it renders us speechless and full of delight. Thank you for joining us for another Confession of Faith episode of Pillar and Ground.